Your thoughts when you're talking don't run faster than your mouth? Oh, I don't know why I asked ask that. Yes, <laughs> I know, I know that your, your thoughts do not outpace your, your mouth, yeah, exactly. so I don't know why. Exactly. Sometimes, sometimes my mouth, fast. yeah, exactly. Yeah. My mouth is just going, man, at all, all times. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the debrief episode, definitely seven. Uh, super excited. I am Justin hanging out here with... The one and only Stephanie. That's me. Hi. Indeed. And we got, of course, Pastor Matt. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Dude, I'm, I'm excited. A little bit later on in this episode, we are bringing on your wife, Tammy, to talk about the Cultivate conference and all that other good stuff happening. But uh, this is your all's 20th anniversary this week. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, we're going to celebrate uh, 20 years together married, and uh, she will celebrate her birthday this year, and she'll be 29 once again for the oh, 11th year in a row. It's a miracle, really. You guys just, it's magic. Yeah, exactly. It's a big week for you guys. And then today is coming out. This is March 1. Yesterday was Leap Day. Very excited about Leap Day just because it only happens once like... Every four years. Well, yes. (laughs) When you say it like that, it sounds like (laughs) it's a little bit more common than that one comment that Mark Twain talked about. Yeah. Isn't that a thing? Yeah, I think according to the Jewish calendar, they have to add like an extra two months every couple of years or something. It's, it's bizarre because they're on a lunar cycle, so it's different. That's so, confusing. So they have like whole months that disappear and reappear. So that is not a theological position from our church, but I believe that is a calendar reality for the Jewish people. Interesting. I, I, I operate on a lunar cycle. Um, <laughs> hey, so I was talking to a guy at church this last weekend. It was so cool because when we were talking about uh, from Luke chapter 8, one of the teachings when Jesus was doing the parable of the, the seeds, right? That guy who throws seeds. And you were talking about how to attend the good soil. And you even talked to us about like making sure that we're singing in church and the battles that go on before there. This guy approached me at church this weekend and he said, you know, his name is Sean. He's like, from the first time in a long time, like I came and I intentionally chose, I'm going to sing words out loud instead of just head bobbing or whatever, which I thought was really cool. So yeah, that's important. Super, super cool. Uh, Man, we're going to jump in here with some Q&A and all those kinds of things. But once again, everybody who has been supporting us in the iTunes, leaving reviews um, everywhere, sharing the podcast with your friends, thank you so much. And then shout out to all of our brand new listeners. If this is your very first episode, uh, you should probably go back to the very beginning because I think we're just like kind of building some momentum right now. And uh, sometimes it's nice to go back and see where everything started. Yeah, yeah well, I hope so. Six weeks and ago. Then go back. I don't think they have to stop now. Indeed. It's already started. I mean, indeed. Yeah, but they're missing out on wisdom from the view, from the beginning. Yeah, Did I you agree. Say from the view, please. No, don't no, ever no, no, no. Wisdom from again. the beginning. From the beginning. In mm. addition to wisdom, also just some great little fun moments. Yeah, that's excellent. Cool. Well, hey, let's jump right in. Uh, can we throw some questions at you? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so uh, I got two great questions that we want to hit you with from Luke chapter eight, which you preached on last week. So here's the very first one to jump right in. This comes from Heather in uh, Shannon Chamberlain's group. And in Luke chapter eight, Jesus heals the demon possessed guy. And verse 39 says, Jesus tells everybody, go back. He tells the man, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. And then the very next story, Jesus raises this guy named Jairus's daughter from the dead. And here in verse 56, Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. Hmm. So what's going on there? Why in some of the times does Jesus tell people to like not tell their friends or family? And then other times he says, Tell everybody what's God's doing in your life. Yeah, well, I think that there's, I think it's a great question. And thanks for all the small groups who are sending questions. But the reality there is, is when Jesus takes credit for the miracle, he's actually pointing to God. He says, tell everyone what God did for you. He doesn't say, tell everyone what I did for you. But I think when he feels like there's no way that he can get around 
uh, what specifically, what he, his part in the process is. He says, don't tell anyone what I did is what he's doing. And so I think that's the difference is it's fine to give God the credit and God the glory. Uh, but what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to stay under the radar enough to not draw so much attention that both uh, the Jews and the Romans have to deal with him because mm-hmm. he's becoming uh, immensely popular. And one of the things that uh, Romans were extremely concerned about was large gatherings where people would revolt. And so ultimately, um, I mean, we believe that the Sadducees you know, and the Pharisees killed Jesus because they were jealous of him, but there was also a genuine concern. So, uh, uh, king, uh, or not king, but the high priest uh, Caiaphas says, it is better for one man to die for his people than for everyone. And so he's actually speaking prophetically of what Jesus is doing. So one man died so that we could all live. But ultimately what he really believed is, look, if this Jesus keeps going in this way, what's gonna happen is what ultimately happens in AD 70. In AD 70, there are several rivaling uh, classes of messiahs, would-be messiahs who claim to be, right? The Messiah, the Christ, this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. God's messenger on earth. And they rally together and they actually overthrow the Roman uh, government for a time. And then uh, the Roman Caesar at that time sends armies and they crush, destroy, obliterate uh, Israel in all of its forms, ultimately forever. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the Jewish people are never the same, right. absolutely never the same. And so, um, so Jesus, right, knows that he's got to navigate uh, this very, very delicately between, you know, the person who's healed or saved or whatever, knowing who did it, and, you know, from the authorities finding out what's happening. Because again, there's these massive, massive crowds that Jesus constantly is running away from. Because he knows eventually what the crowd is going to want to do, which is what they do do is try to make him king. Mm-hmm. They try to make him king. And he's like, that's not why, you know, I've come here. I didn't come to bring a political revolution. He came to bring personal salvation. And it was so hard for them to understand that. But the Romans, and, and the Pharisees and Sadducees all knew what the word Messiah meant. And so when he's like revealing himself as Messiah, as he does in Luke 9, that is a political statement. He, he, is, he is making a statement that he is a political revolutionary, which ultimately he will usurp governments. The Bible says uh, in Isaiah that the government will rest upon his shoulders and of his reign, there, will be no, there, there won't be an end. And so what the Jews didn't understand is that first he had to bring salvation before he could bring, you know, political resurrection, so to speak, because mm-hmm. our, our political system will always be broken right. until Christ reigns. And so, so I hope the answer to the question is, is I think he, he takes credit when he points to God, but in other situations, he's like, tell no one what I've done, because what, what do you do? What, what, what does Rome do? And what, I mean, so when you think about it in terms of when do the, when do the Pharisees say Jesus has to die? There's a specific moment where they say, we've got to kill him. And it's right after he raises Lazarus from the dead. They see it, they experience, it's a public raising. So in this instance, right, he goes into the girl's house, little girl, arise. So it's very private and and it makes sense. So it's Peter, James, and John, the mom, the dad, and Jesus, and the little girl. That's it. He says, not everybody needs to know this. But with Lazarus, right, there's, there's mourners, there's crowds, they go to the tomb. And he says, come forth. And so that's a public thing. And so when he does that, that's when they say he has to die. And by the way, not just Jesus, but Lazarus has to be killed too, because they have to kill the guy who brought him back from the dead and they have to kill the evidence. And so, so that's why Jesus has a specific appointment with death. There, 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 you know, the book of revelation says that he was crucified before the foundations of the earth. He is marching towards a moment. Mm -hmm. And so he knows exactly when he's going to die. And so he has to navigate not dying too soon. 
because there's a point, a place. He has an appointment with death, and um, and he's he's amazing at that. So that's what that's why I would say is, you know, when he, he can turn it to God, say, you know, show yourself to the priest, give God glory. All that's fine, mm-hmm. but when it's okay, what happened? Well, Jesus. I mean, it's 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 a bit different. Am I correct in assuming that all of the events? in the book of Luke essentially take place over kind of a three year span. So there's like maybe a couple months in between some of these things. Yeah. Well, all, all of the, all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every author feels completely free to move events around. So they don't all happen in chronological order. Like, so the gospel of John, John could care less about the calendar. What he wants you to know is Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. So he starts not with the birth of Jesus, like Matthew and Luke do. He starts, we're going to talk about in a minute with the beginning of time you know, in the beginning, right. God. And so he starts there. So he's not he's not interested. And so that's really, really hard for us to grasp in our Western minds because everything fits. You know, we're the king of one, two, three, four. You know, the Jews might go one, three, you know, two, four. They'll move all over the place. That's just the way that they think. The Eastern mind is very, very different. And so what they want us to know, you know, so G, or Mark wants us to know that Jesus is, you know, the powerful anointed Christ. Luke wants us to know he's the savior of the world. Matthew wants us to know he's the Messiah. John wants us to know that he's God in human flesh. And so they just do whatever they want with the um, the kind of, I'm saying calendar, but the the, the, the events in order, they don't right, care about the chron- that. They, just, the they, just, they don't care about the chronology, thank you. They move it around wherever they want to communicate the point that they want while they're writing the story. So, um, and that's why, you know, things are different. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are some things that are the same, and there are some things that are radically different. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, which means the same. Uh, it's a Greek word for meaning the same. They're, they're the most similar. And then John is the most different because this is the last gospel. And he's really only interested in the last couple weeks of Jesus's life. Mm-hmm. So is there a short answer to the question like if, if I have an unbelieving friend or like somebody who's anti-Christian in my family or whatever, and they're like, well, your Bible like is not even telling these things in the same order. Is right. there a short version to the the question of why, why as Christians are we okay with that? Yeah, well, I think it's, number one, it speaks to the authenticity of the scriptures. Like for example, uh, if you look at the copy of a book of Mormon from the 1880s, it's radically different from the copies that people have now. Why? Because there were discrepancies in the original books, and so the Church of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints has, has gone to great lengths to correct all those problems. They've edited. They've edited God's word, and so I think to me the thing that's you know so that tells you about the Book of Mormon is that it's been changed. It's different. The old version is very different from the current version. What we can say is there there haven't been changes because right if you were trying to make things look the same. They, they would all be the same and they would all agree completely, but nobody ever felt like they needed to change Matthew's perspective from Mark's perspective, from Luke's, from John's, but they all believed that they were legitimate perspectives and they were okay with that. And the other thing I would say is, is because the gospels are different, what that means is they're unique uh, reflections of Jesus. Mm. They're not just copied down stories from one person. And that's what a lot of liberal scholars think is that all of these guys pulled from one uh, source, it's called Q, uh, it's it's a German word, I believe. My German, I don't speak any German, but I believe the German word Q means source. So there's one source that all these guys drew from, but the problem is there's no evidence of Q. It's a made-up theory um, by, by, by liberal scholars who want to say all these guys are copying from one source, but that's not what we see. What we see is four independent accounts 
of the life of Jesus Christ. And they see different things mm-hmm. and they experience different things. But what I would say is they all say this, Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross and he was raised from the thir- on, on the third day. They all say that. Um, you know, sometimes Jesus heals two blind guys and the other gospel, it was one blind guy. I say, it doesn't matter. People, a blind guy or two got healed. So, right, right, right. Uh, bratwurst, is that a German word officially? Schnitzel? Yeah, it's just a German treat. I forget the word. It's officially lunchtime. Okay, I'm, well, I'm just trying to think if I know any more German words than you do. Okay, so Nine. last week on the podcast... <laughs> Sorry, that's the only German word. Excellent, excellent. Last week on the podcast, we ended up talking a lot about demons and that kind of stuff. But in your message on Luke chapter 8, really what you talked about is our bodies are sp- containers for our spirits. Right, right. So one of the questions that came in from Kelly in Danny's group, she said, if if we're saved, so if we're Christians, does our spirit go to heaven to be with Jesus right away when we die? Yes. So there there are different, you know, theological positions on this. And, and you know, some Christians believe in a thing called soul sleep. I do not hold to that position. I, I don't believe in that, and I'll explain why. So the idea of soul sleep is, is that when you die, your soul goes to sleep. And so you await the resurrection of the dead. Um, the most famous group for that is uh, uh, Ben Carson running for president, Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventists hold to soul sleep. They believe that we, we, we will live and we will die and we will sleep awaiting Jesus Christ to announce a resurrection. The problem with that is, is in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, right. um, specifically, the Apostle Paul is talking about how he's torn between um, being here and going to heaven. And he's legitimately torn. He says, I want to be here with you guys because there's work to do, but I also want to go and be with Christ. And he says, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And I, I just don't believe that Paul would have been in a hurry to sleep for 2,000 years. I mean, I, I don't know who would be, right? What, Paul's not the kind of guy to me that, that seems like he wants to rest. He wants to work. And he's saying, you know, as long as I'm here in the body, I will work and be productive for the Lord. And so I believe based upon that, you know, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so he doesn't say today you're going to take a long nap, but when you wake up, I'll be there and you'll be in paradise. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's no one that would have heard what Jesus said and assumed that in something called soul sleep. And so I believe that like the Bible says, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. So we go to one of two places. We go to be with Jesus, uh, awaiting the day of judgment and our rewards, or we go to hell or prison and we await judgment, the final judgment of all things and all people. And so, you know, Jesus gives a picture of that when he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, but the rich man goes to a place of torment, Jesus says. And uh, Lazarus, the homeless, poor, broken man who just has sores and begs for food every day, he goes to be in the, in the bosom of Abraham, in the arms of Abraham. And so he's blessed instantaneously. And so Jesus seems to indicate that there's these two places of waiting, one with the followers of God and one uh, who have rejected God and are in prison and await judgment. And apparently the prison is not nice because Abraham is loathing. Right. Uh, excuse me, the rich man is loathing and, and begging for even a drop of water to be touched to his tongue. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so we got a bunch of stuff from... Uh, sure do. Sorry, I'm breaking things over here. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's jump into a bunch of stuff from Luke chapter 9. There's so much in there that you didn't even get to unpack from your message. That was uh, really good stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to ask about, um, so in Luke 9, it talks about 
Jesus is sending out the disciples. He says, if a town refuses to welcome you, shake the, its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you've abandoned those people to their feet. Shake it off, shake it off. I was going to go with the Taylor Swift shake yeah. it off, actually. Is that yeah, not the Taylor Swift version? No, I don't know, but please awesome. don't ever sing again. Haters going to hate, man. <laughs> there hate, you, hate, there hate. it is. Well done, well done. Um, when do you decide to shake it off, if you will? When do you decide to shake the dust off your feet yeah. and leave? So maybe not even like entering into, entering into the town, maybe, but I'm even thinking in relationships. Yeah, I, I think when there's been a, a clear presentation. So the assumption is, right, they have come to the village, they have preached the kingdom, they have healed people. So both God's gospel and God's power has been present. And when those two things have taken place, so clearly the gospel has been proclaimed and God's power has been present. If there is still a rejection, then you need to be done. So people have heard the gospel and they've seen God's spirit move in some kind of way. They've experienced something. Um, and that's why I think Hebrews says that once people have tasted of the Holy Spirit, they've gotten a taste and they reject him, there's no hope for them. So that's what the author of Hebrews says. And so what we need to do is we need to allow people to have their choice. We can continue to pray, we can continue to hope, but who knows what God's gonna do. But here's the thing is, so many of us, we spend our time trying to save a person that doesn't wanna be saved. When there's people all around us who are desperate. I think of this story specifically, Tammy and I, we bought our, our second home when we were married and we moved into the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And this is one of my favorite stories. Um, our neighbors to the left of us were just like us, young. I don't think they had any kids. We, we had two little girls. Uh, I think Ma Madison was barely two years old. Kennedy was not even one years old yet. We moved in and I just knew that Jesus had called us to, to reach them for Christ. So we went over, I tried to make friends. I, I did you know everything I could to try to woo them into um, you know, building a relationship with us so we share the gospel. And I remember one time specifically, I said, we'd love to invite you over for dinner sometime. I didn't give a date. And the guy says, we're busy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, I mean, what he's saying is, no, we don't ever, we don't ever want to have dinner with you. Meanwhile, my next door neighbor on my right side, you know, older couple, uh, African-American gentleman, uh, about 60, 65 years old, is dying of cancer. I don't know this because I haven't gone to their house. I've seen him outside a couple times doing yard work. His wife's Hispanic, doesn't speak really good English. What I don't know is she's heard somehow that I'm a pastor and she's praying every day for me to come to their house. Hmm. But what I'm doing is, is I'm focused on the people that are like me and I'm trying to share the gospel with them. They have no desire whatsoever to hear the gospel. They, they, don't, they don't care. They know I'm a pastor. We've had those conversations. They could care less. And so what's sad is because I was so focused on them, I didn't get to say yes to my neighbor. Now, God was good and sovereign. And for whatever reason, uh, the man as he was dying started watching TBN. And on TBN, like a lot of people are, are critical of them, but he repented of his sins and gave his life to Christ. And then he died. Then she came over to our house and asked if I would do the funeral. Hmm. Eventually she gave her life to Christ as well. And one is one of our most faithful members for a couple of years in our church. Her name was Mary or Maria, excuse me. Her name was Maria. So that's just a great example of so many times, man, you know, we're so focused on praying for our husband whose heart is hardened or our wife whose heart is hardened or our kids whose hearts are hardened. We're not paying attention to the soil that's right next to us that's ripe. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think, um, you know, we, we can offer people that we care about up to Jesus, but we need to focus on where, where can I share the gospel and, have, and, and see people get saved? And so that's what I wanna do is I just don't, I don't like arguing with people. Like you're never gonna see me like go argue or debate with an atheist. Why, why would I do that? I would much rather talk to a person who's curious, a person who's interested um, because I don't wanna waste my time and I don't like arguing. I don't know about you guys, but if I have an opinion about something, very rarely can someone change my mind. And so I'd rather talk to people who are open and, right. and, and wanna hear. How do we how do we discern like because you talked about are they rejecting the gospel 
Is that what your neighbors on the other side did? Well, I don't know that they reject the gospel, but um, I had talked to him specifically about, hey, I'd love to tell you, because Tammy had planted this church. It was very, very small. It was growing. I'd love to talk to you about why I'm a pastor and share with you, you know, what I believe about Jesus. And he just was not interested. I right. mean, he just, everything I did, and they were nice. I mean, they weren't rude, but they just weren't interested. And so, again, what I would say is pray and say, God, who are the people in my life that you're moving in? Who are the people in my life that I should be talking to? And the problem is we, we end up talking to the people we want to talk to, and we miss out on the people God would have us talk to. And, and that's our greatest impact is where is God moving? What is God doing? I don't know if that... Yeah, I think so. Like, I, I think sometimes it, this guy was clearly disinterested, like not at all interested, but I think it's hard for a lot of us to accept that you know, he knows what he knows what you're about. He knows what you're there to do, and he's just not interested. And I think it's hard for some of us to say, you know, like to maybe let go um, and say, "All right, I'm going to go focus on somewhere else." Yeah. Well, like I have family members. You know, everyone in my family knows I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I have family members who've rejected Jesus. They they don't believe anymore. And so when we have family, you know, reunions, get-togethers, or whatever. I don't try to share the gospel with them anymore. I, I've done that. I, I have tried to talk to every single family member I have about Jesus, and it's just it's just pointless. And and all it does is you know by trying to persuade somebody, right? Is it just ticks them off? And so what I try to do is be loving and kind. You know, say things like, "Hey, I'm praying for you." You know, I, I'm concerned for that. And I try to connect with them on other levels so that one day, if the soil ever is softened, I'll be one of the people that they come to talk to. But once somebody once somebody rejects the gospel, you got to move on because, you know, th- there's other people. If you think about it this way, if you, if you see a swimming pool full of children and they're all drowning and you jump in and the first kid's going to fight you off, every second that you're trying to save that kid, you're letting others drown. Hmm. And, and, and so you just, okay, the kid doesn't want to be saved. You got to let them go. And you got to grab the kids that you can and save as many as you can. Mm-hmm. And people say that's harsh. And I say, no, it's wise. It's wisdom. So... Um, you try rescuing somebody that doesn't want to be saved. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a fight. So, Got it. Well, speaking of fights, let's talk politics for a minute here. Uh, because uh, Luke chapter 9, basically verses 21 through 22, Jesus essentially tells the Jewish people like, hey, I am not the political savior, Messiah that you're looking for. And you talked a lot about that, how especially during election cycles, we tend to get really focused on looking for a presidential political candidate to kind of be a savior of our nation or the world's issues or all those kinds of things. Let's just talk really quickly. How as Christians, people trying to follow Jesus, do we evaluate political candidates and make decisions about voting? Right. And I would just say this, every candidate is flawed. I mean, they don't get to where they are with the exception, maybe of Ben Carson. I mean, that guy, he's just too sweet and nice (laughs) to be in politics, which is why he's losing so terribly. Uh, he's probably he's probably the first you know character ever. I, I think Jimmy Carter was a good man. I don't think he was a great president, you know, but I think he was a good man. And so the first thing that I would say is I think the mistake that we've made as evangelicals is we try to elect pastors to the presidency, hmm. and I just don't know that that's wise. I think that we need to elect the best person uh, for the position. And your pastor's your pastor. Your president needs to be your president, and you need to look at that. So you know, I have uh, good good godly Christians, you know, who are Democrats, and I have certain, you know, objections with them. But there's also some problems on the right, um, you know, with the positions that they hold about wealth and power and, right. and stuff like that. So ne- neither side is perfect. Um, what I would say is this, is, you know, as Christians, we need we need to become seriously aware that our religious freedom um, 
is potentially in real danger. And, and the reason for that is, is, is those who are on the left, and I, and I used to be a left-leaning individual, believe that the Constitution is a living document and should be interpreted and is open to change. And the problem with that is, as Christians, we enjoy the freedom we have because of our, you know, our First Amendment, our, mm-hmm. our right to practice our religion as we seek. And the problem with that is that that right is already being eroded. You're seeing people who have to make a wedding cake, or you're seeing... Um, you know, people who have to perform a certain ceremony or open their house for a gay wedding when they have religious objections to that. And people say, well, that's the cost of being American. And I just disagree. You know, let's say I own a tattoo shop and somebody came in and wanted me to tattoo on their arm, you know, something negative about black people or negative about Asian people. Right. I believe that I should be able to conscientiously object to putting that on their body. I, I don't have to do that as an American citizen. Sure. And so I think that, you know, a lot of our freedoms are being eroded. And, and, and I, it is my hope that we will have, uh, you know, not a Democrat or a Republican uh, nomination to the Supreme Court, but a constitutionalist and someone who sees that the Constitution must be defended and upheld and the freedoms that we have are important. And I think that our founding fathers were wise. They'd seen the corruption of government. They'd seen that government is dangerous. And the thing that to be feared the most is government because it's powerful and they can take your life and your freedom. And so I think that as, as Christians, we need to be very, very aware as we're you know, um, assessing our candidates that the next person is gonna decide the Supreme Court justices, two, maybe three. Potentially four. I mean, a lot of these people are very, very old. Sure. Uh, and so that, that's going to make a big, big difference in how we live our lives as Christians in America. And so that's huge. So what I would say is you got to evaluate your, your, your candidate and just know this, they're all going to pander to your spirituality. They all are, every single one. Um, you know, Bill Clinton called himself a black preacher. So, and then now Donald Trump has been radically saved. Although, you know, I he- I've heard him say he's never asked God for forgiveness. And to me, Right. You know, that's like me claiming to be a swimmer, but I've never been in a pool. Yeah. I mean, it just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And so, you know, no matter if they're on the left or the right, they're going to try to pander to us and convince us that somehow they're saved and they know Jesus so that we'll vote for them. And what I would just say is just pray about it and ask God to to guide you and evaluate. I mean, every single one of them is flawed. They just are. They're not, they're not perfect. Um, you know, politics is, the definition of politics is who gets what, when, where, and how. And that means by definition it's going to be an ugly process. And so uh, we need to pray for those people and, and pray that, um, you know, God will um, somehow bless our nation in spite of the people that we elect. And so I'm hopeful, but, um, you know, I, I will never endorse a candidate. You know, I, I just don't think that's my call. I think my call is to pastor and to shepherd people and to challenge them to use, you know, their own minds that God has yeah, given them. That. But um, I think we need to be weary of, you know, electing somebody who claims, you know, to be a Christian and everything about them is the opposite of mm-hmm. what Christ has called us to do. And so I think that um, um, that's important. Got it. Um, in Luke 9, Jesus is talking to his followers about what's going to happen to him. Um, and right after that, it says, they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it. And they're afraid to ask him about it. Why does Jesus say things and then immediately say, sorry, you're not going to understand that? Yeah, well, because they, they couldn't understand, they couldn't possibly fathom that a guy by Jesus, like Jesus is going to be crucified. I mean, had they fully understand that, most of them probably would have abandoned him at that moment. Hmm. I mean, right, are you, are you going to, uh, you know, think about in a political candidacy, are you going to support the candidate you know is going to lose? 
No, most people are not. You're going to shift your allegiances and follow somebody that has a, a chance to be elected. Right. And so Jesus is saying, man, guys, I'm going to lose. And not only am I going to lose, they're going to kill me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my, my political campaign is going to end in my death. And so um, they didn't understand what, what this meant. They, they couldn't possibly comprehend how he would be rejected, how he'd be suffered, because he's the most popular person in Israel at that time. Right. I mean, King Herod doesn't want to kill him. He wants to see him. He wants to meet him. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he's the wonder worker. He's amazing. And so they, they couldn't understand it. They didn't get it. And, you know, it's not until the post-resurrection and, and the falling of the Holy Spirit upon them that they begin to be like, oh, that's what he was talking about, right? You're not going to die, Jesus. That's not going to happen. I mean, Peter even says in another gospel, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let you die. And mm-hmm. Jesus calls him Satan and says, get behind me, Satan. So, so not only don't they get it, but Peter is opposed to his suffering and to his dying. This is not going to happen. I'm not going to let this happen. And, um, and even on, on Good Friday, Peter cuts off the ear of a Roman soldier because he's still trying to prevent it. Mm-hmm. They love Jesus. They didn't want him to die. They wanted him to rule and reign. And um, they, just, they just didn't get it. And, and again, so you asked me earlier, how can we trust the scriptures? Why would they put that in there? I mean, these are the guys that wrote it. I, I think they would say, yeah, I always knew. I was the one that knew. Judas didn't sure. know, but I, I knew. Well, n- n- none of them knew. And, and they don't present that in any way, shape, or form. They present themselves as clueless. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand Jesus. I mean, they're never the hero. Jesus is. Right. And, and he's gone. So I think it speaks to the authenticity and the reliability of Scripture. As these guys are saying, we didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, it seems like there's a lot of times just in going through life where there are certain things that you don't fully understand or appreciate until you step like into the next season of life. Like, yeah. you know, you get a mortgage or yeah. kids or whatever that is. So really cool. Okay. Well, one of the things that you just touched on, but seems to be a really significant uh, part of Luke chapter nine, um, there's kind of this key little section of verses around 35 through 36, which in my Bible was labeled the transfiguration of Jesus. And uh, here's kind of one of, one of the big parts says, and a voice came out of the cloud. Jesus is up at the top of the mountain with the, three of his uh, apostle guys, and the voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent until no one in those days of anything they'd seen. So God appears, it's totally crazy. Jesus like lights up like he's glowing, all kinds of stuff. Can you talk to us about what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's the freakiest thing probably human eyes have ever seen. The Bible says that they were terrified. They were absolutely scared to death because Jesus Christ's body transfigured. I mean, somehow, in some way, we're going to talk about Philippians 2 in just a couple of minutes about okay. how Christ emptied himself um, of his deity and became a man, or, or emptied himself, let me clarify, of his divine attributes and qualities to become a man. And so now, almost what's happening is it's like he's, he's pulling off the suit. Like, he, you know, he's, he's, he's opening the shirt and he's letting them see who he really is. Mm-hmm. And it's so bright, it's so radiant, it's like staring at the sun and they, and they don't know what to do. And then, so it goes from like sheer brightness to darkness. And, and there's a cloud cover and all of a sudden there's a voice. This is my beloved son, my chosen one. So they got the chosen one, right? Because he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the chosen one, you're the Christ. But now they know he's not just he's not just the Messiah, but he's God's son. Right. There's a, there's a uniqueness there. Mm-hmm. There's a relationship there that you know. I don't know that Jews would have understood the Messiah to be divine. I, I just don't think that they would have ever comprehended that. And that's another reasons why so many Jews reject Jesus today because God can't have a son. There's only one God, 
How, how is it that he has a son? That's impossible because now you have two gods. Well, as Christians, we don't believe in two gods. We believe in one God who's existed eternally in three relationships, right. his father, his son, and his spirit. And they all interact with us in different ways. And somehow they're three and they're one. And so this blew their minds. But man, I mean, they are absolutely terrified. It's one of my favorite places to visit in Israel. It's Mount Tabor. I just love it. A, a lot of evangelical churches don't go there because it's a disputed site. Um, but I just think it is truly a magical spiritual place. I mm. just love it. And it's it's just a beautiful church on the top of this mountain. Like I said, it's uh, Mount Tabor, I believe is about 500 feet taller than Mount Rubido here in Riverside. So that gives you kind of a perspective mm -hmm. for how large it is. And we take these little mini buses all the way up to the top and it's terrifying. <laughs> but uh, we get up to the top and then you get out and you're in a Catholic church. And there's been a church there, you know, for over 1500 years. It's just beautiful. And it, you're overlooking almost all of Northern Israel. You can see, uh, um, you can see where uh, Mount Carmel, where uh, Elijah battled uh, the prophets of Baal. You can see the uh, the Armageddon Valley. You can see Galilee. You can see Mount uh, Hermon. You know, ninety five hundred feet tall. You can see everything. You can see the Mediterranean Ocean from it. It's just spectacularly beautiful, and um, I think it's. I, I don't know. You know, whether it was that spot or not, I think it's it's an awesome place to connect with this idea that disciples got to get a glimpse, just a glimpse, of who Jesus really is. Hmm. And uh, he shared that not even with all 12, he only shared it with three, Peter, James, and John, the leaders of the 12. And I think that they didn't speak about it in that instance because they didn't know, they didn't know what to say. How would you describe that? Mm -hmm. they, they, didn't, they didn't have any clue. There's no human words to describe ultimately divine qualities. There just aren't. Right. Knowing what I know now, I would describe it maybe as kind of like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but not quite so scary. Yeah, not the melting faces and all that stuff. Yeah, but there's like they light up and it's pretty intense. Yeah, it's beautiful. Remember, yeah, that's right. Most of our viewers probably didn't see that movie because they weren't born. But yeah, yeah, way to date yourself. Um, no that's like one, of, it's like one of the top five films of all time. Well, let's talk more about who who Jesus really is, right? You mentioned this weekend. If we had time, we would talk all about that. And um, you specifically talked about like five biblical passages that you called the top five to talk about like who Jesus is as God. Can we jump into those? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that as Christians, we need to really be able to have these five passages in our arsenal. Say a Jehovah Witness comes to your door, you know, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe that he's an angel. They believe that he's created. Um, they believe that he's amazing and, you know, deserves our utmost respect, loyalty, and they go around spreading the gospel to his name, but they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Right. And so, like I said before, is at Sandals Church, with Christianity, we, we don't believe that Jesus is God because we want him to be God or because we need him to be God. We believe at Sandals Church with Christianity that Jesus is God because that is what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. The Bible says he is God. And there's five specific places where it talks about, you know, the deity of God. And, and deity means, you know, he's divine. So when I'm using that word, that's, that's what it means. The deity of Jesus Christ is talking about his divinity. He is God-like. We are humans, so our humanity. Jesus is divine, so we speak of him as in his divinity. So my, my master's degree is a master's of divinity. And so it's, it's the study of God and right. who he is. And so, so the first passage that everybody needs to turn to is, and if you have your Bibles with you, I mean, not if you're driving, but is John, the Gospel of John, chapter one, verses one through four. 
And so John is writing to a, a, a Greek thinking, a Greek speaking audience. Okay. So Greek is the dominant culture. Just like today in our world, American culture is the dominant culture. There's right. no other culture that's even okay. close. No matter where you go in the world, right? They know um, Kobe. They, yeah, they know Kobe Bryant. They know, uh, you said you said shake it off. Taylor, Taylor Swift. They know Taylor Swift. Uh, they know Coke. I mean, right. the, most, the most well-known word in the world, English word in the world is Coke. I mean, no matter where you go, you say Coke, they know what you mean. So American culture dominates. It's music dominates. Um, I remember when Tammy and I, we went to Peru, we went to Peru and all the music is American. Right. So it's just, it's just amazing. And so Greek culture and thought was that way. And so when the gospel of John is written, he uses the word logos to describe who God is and who Jesus is. And it says this, it says in the beginning, the word already existed. Now the word word in the Greek is logos. So it would be in the beginning, the logos already existed. The logos was with God and the logos was God. It says he existed in the beginning with God and God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The world gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. And so when he's trying to describe to us who Jesus is, he uses this word logos. Mm -hmm. and, and the word logos is a Greek philosophical term that would have been understood. Aristotle called it the unmoved mover. So as they're talking about creation and everything that existed in Greek thought, there's this unmoved mover. So there's something behind everything that started everything. And so the, the term logos is kind of, it would almost mean the soul of the universe. Oh. So, um, right, so, uh, modern day scientists, you know, talk about the universe like it's alive. So for the Greeks, the universe is not alive, but th there's a soul that's alive within the universe. Mm -hmm. And so John uses their language and their understanding. And he says, hey guys, you know, the soul of the universe that you believe in, that you know, then that unmoved mover that you talk about, well, let me tell you who he is or what he was. So in the beginning, the unmoved mover, the logos, the soul of the universe, it already, it already existed. Mm -hmm. So the soul of the universe existed before the universe. It didn't come, it, it didn't come to life when life came to life, but it pre-exists that. And it says the word was with God. And, and here in the Greek, it's proston theon, it, meaning face to face. So the Bible says no one can see God face to face and survive. So even Moses, when he sees God face to face, he actually sees him with his back to, yeah. you know, to God and his face you know, in, in the cleft of a rock. So he doesn't actually see God face to face, but M Moses knows God more intimately than any other human being in history. So Jesus, right? He doesn't have to shove his face in, in a rock as God passes by, you know, with his glory. Jesus is eternally face to face with God, proston theon. Mm -hmm. um, so the word was with God and listen to what he says. So how is it possible that the logos is, is with God all the time? It says, because the Logos is God. Mm. So the Logos is Jesus Christ. So he's not gonna talk about the Logos. He's gonna, he's gonna start with the Logos, something very, very contemporary to, to Greek thought. And then he's gonna talk about Jesus. And he's gonna tell us. So you could translate it this way. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus existed in the beginning with God and God created everything through Jesus and nothing was created except through Jesus. Okay. And so that's, that's, that's the most important passage, um, you know, and right there, the gospel of John, he starts off the opening monologue. He wants us to know Jesus is God and it's indisputable. That's who he is. Anybody that doesn't translate it the way that I'm telling you to translate it, they, they have an agenda. They have a theological agenda and they don't allow um, the text to say what it texts. So a Jehovah Witness will say, well, Jesus was a little God. 
And that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say he's a little God. It says he, he, he was with God and he is God. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunate. And like I said, don't pick on Jehovah's Witnesses. We love them. And we, man, in many ways, they're far more faithful than many Christians are. So, so that's the number one passage. Okay, let's jump over to Philippians 2. I love this one. Um, and you're going to talk about five, verses 5 through 11. Yeah, specifically. So, you know, here, here's this is, what's important about this passage is it's, it's one of the oldest known passages of Scripture. So how do we know it's old? Because it's a song. This is something that uh, Christians probably would have sung or, 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 or written about or talked about. And the Apostle Paul borrows from this idea or this song that's earlier than the letter. Okay. So he's not telling them something new. Got it. He's telling them something they know. And so he's talking about the fact that um, Jesus Christ is to be emulated by the Christian in all things. So he says, you must have the same attitude of Christ Jesus. Though he was God. See, Paul is, is agreeing 100% with John. He says, though he was God, he did not think equality with God was something to cling to. So what's amazing about Jesus is he's completely divine, but he doesn't hold on to it. Right. See, there's a releasing. So you think about clinging. We, we cling to things. We cling to our money. We cling to our relationships. We, we, we cling to our friendships. Jesus didn't cling to God, but he, he let go. So he did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. So he gave up his privileges and he took on the humble position of his slave and he was born as a human being and then he appeared in human form. Mm-hmm. So Jesus Christ is fully a man, but that's not, all, that's not who he's always been. He became a man in Bethlehem at that first Christmas, but he had always been God. Can I ask and, a clarifying yeah. question there? So when he, you're saying that he gave up his divine privileges, became man, how does that then work with, obviously he still has divine power and that right. he's able to heal. Right, he can read people's miracles. minds and stuff. Well, and he he has some abilities, but Jesus has limited even those. So this is the way that I look at it. Like, um, I mean, this illustration doesn't work perfectly because my son is quickly becoming uh, more physically able than I. But like, say a couple years ago when he's little, let's say my son and I enter into a three-legged race. I was, I was a, a track um, uh, athlete in, in high school and in college. Very, very good runner. You guys know I've done Ironmans. But we enter into the three-legged race together. It doesn't matter how fast I can run. What matters is how fast can Ethan run. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the race, I am limited to his ability. Mm-hmm. So Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter who he is as God. What matters when he becomes a human being is he limits himself to the full capability of human beings. So Jesus, right, can do way more than we can, but he's still limited because he's entered into the human race in a three-legged race. And so now he doesn't know everything. He knows a lot. He, he, you know, he, he doesn't know when the end is going to come. He talks about the, that that's for the father to determine. And there's just things that he doesn't know. And he seems surprised by some things, overwhelmed by some things. So he's entering into a genuine human experience. But what Jesus is showing us is not everything that God can do. Here's the thing that's freaky. Jesus is showing us everything we can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, gosh, you want to feel like a failure? Look at Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, wow. Okay, these, and again, that's why when I say as... People, we're not judged based upon Mother Teresa's standard or Muhammad Gandhi's standard. We're judged according to Jesus' standard because he's revealing human potential. But even that doesn't even comprehend what he's capable of. And so he appeared as a human being because remember, Jesus Christ has to mend the relationship, the broken relationship between God and men. So how does he do that? He perfectly represents both parties. 
He understands exactly what God's righteousness is like, and he understands exactly what human nature is like. And somehow, he lives the human life perfectly. He's tempted in every way that we are. Okay, he cried, he got tired, he got hungry. Uh, He even got angry, but he did all of that without sin. Absolutely amazing. So Jesus Christ gave up um, his position uh, as God, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he emptied himself. But listen to what he says. It says he appeared in human form and he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. I mean, the angels must be pulling their hair out, right? Here's the King of kings and Lord of lords dying a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and he gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on on earth and under earth and every tongue should declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what's amazing. We are not to worship anyone but God. Mm-hmm. And yet this passage says we are to worship Jesus. Right. Not only are we to worship Jesus, but everyone in heaven will worship Jesus and everyone in hell. Because when we glorify Jesus, when we worship Jesus, ultimately we're glorifying the Father, we're glorifying God. And so I don't know exactly how that works, but it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so we can't worship Jesus if he's anything but God. Because by definition, now, you know, we've committed heresy. There's only one God. And, um, and Paul is making the case here, I think, rather clearly, that Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this doesn't freak you out, man. But I remember you preached a sermon about this like 10 years ago. And uh, just that concept that th- of that three-legged race was super important for me t- in terms of thinking through like, what do I want out of my own life? Like, what do, what do I want to, to be and aspire to and even pursue? And I think it's so profound that thing when you just said, like, he's, he's revealing, like, our potential. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so great in terms of really trying to think through, like, resetting our expectations and all those things. Because at least for me, I think a lot of us, like, we grow up and maybe our moms or our dads, if they're really great parents, have these super high expectations for us. But then as, as we get out into the real world, you know, we start picking up these things and we just kind of even just let go of a lot of those expectations. And I love the idea of coming back, especially as we're going to be in Luke um, for many more months and looking at all the different things that Jesus is doing and is saying and is, uh, yeah, even encouraging his own followers to try and do right. in his name and saying, man, I want to aspire t- toward that. Yeah, yeah and so he cool. tells his disciples, you will do greater things than right, me. Exactly. Because he's what he's showing is our potential. And so we all need to think about that. I mean, you know, Paul would later say, uh, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And we need to think about that, that we can do far more than we think we can. We are far more able than we, than we know. Um, you know, one of my favorite, uh, I know this is supposed to be about Jesus, but my favorite passages is after the fall in Genesis 3, God has to put a flaming uh, or an angel with a sword in front of the Garden Eden, you know, to, to keep Adam and Eve from going back. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? Because Adam and Eve were awesome. I mean, mm-hmm. they were strong and powerful, and God had to put one of his most powerful heavenly beings to keep them out. That's, that's who they were. And so, you know, you know, science tells us that we're evolving, but the truth is we're probably de-evolving. Hmm. You know, um, the Egyptians and those guys could do things that we can't even comprehend. Uh, we've lost so much intelligence over the year, even though we've gained so much technology. We have no idea the potential that human beings have. This is legit. Okay, let's keep going through... Um 
these passages. The next chunk, and this is this is a big one, is in uh, Colossians chapter one. You uh, highlighted verses fifteen through twenty. Can we talk about those a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So again, so these are the top five passages that every Christian needs to pray through and wrestle. You know, if you want to know why we believe that Jesus Christ is God, these are the passages that you need to go through. So in Colossians one. 15 through 20. So he's writing a letter to the church at Colossae, and he is writing them these words. He says, this is who Jesus Christ is. He says, Jesus Christ, uh, this is verse uh, 15. 15. Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, right? So do you, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. This is who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So we can't see God, but we can see Jesus. Why? so that we can see God. It's absolutely amazing. So who is Jesus? He says, Jesus existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, the supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself and he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. I mean, this you, you could spend a year of your life just meditating on this passage yeah, totally. of who Christ is. And so, you know, there's a couple things that, you know, we need to just, that just jump at us. So Christ is the visible image of the invisible. We can't see God, but we can see Jesus. Um, Jesus Christ created everything. So we, when you read Genesis one and two, and God's doing all of this creation, now we know who that was. His name is Jesus, and he's making all of this stuff. And so when we see that, that, that Jesus, right, he, he took the clay of the earth and he molded Adam in his hands. That's Jesus that did that. And it's absolutely amazing. But he didn't just make, Adam and Eve, he made the garden, he made the earth, he made the heavens, he put the stars where they are. He did all of that. And not only did he create it, but he holds it together. I mean, Jesus, even if you don't believe in Jesus, he's holding your life together. I mean, as we speak, hmm. people who deny him and who reject him, he's holding their very existence together. He's telling the atoms of their bodies to stay together. It, they're being obedient to his word and, uh, and, and to his truth. And I just think that's absolutely incredible. What I love about this passage is it just gives us a, a galactic sort of feel to salvation. Mm -hmm. A lot of us think about what Jesus Christ did for me, but this passage speaks to what Jesus Christ did for all creation, the heavens and the earth, man. You know, if there are aliens and E.T. is real, E.T. is saved because of what Jesus Christ did on Crazy. the cross. All creation is saved by Jesus. And it's absolutely, absolutely amazing. I don't even know how to keep going and process all that because... Yes, that's that's really intense. Do can we keep marching through these yeah. little passages? Because yeah. this next one I love uh, from Titus chapter two, verse thirteen. You you brought out while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. What's going on there? Yeah, so this is right. Just a, a small sentence that has huge theological impact. And so okay. one of the things that. Um, you know, the Greek language has is rules, just like, you know, English has rules, I before E except ever C. So in Greek, there's a rule called the Granville Sharp Rule. And this guy uh, named Granville who um, came up with this rule is, and he noticed it in Greek that whenever you have a, a specific noun with the article before it, so like the word the before it, and it's not attached to the second noun, uh, and it's separated by the word in English, 
I know I'm like talking crazy, but it's separated by the English word and, which in Greek is kai, K-A-I. What that means is you're talking about the same person. So for example, this rule helps us understand when Jesus says, uh, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So because of that rule, we know that Jesus isn't talking about the God of Abraham, one God, the God of Isaac, two gods, the God of Jacob, three gods. That rule helps us understand that we're talking about one God of three individuals. And so here that rule helps us. So uh, if, I'm, if I say the taste of peanut butter and jelly, I am talking about their delicious flavors combined yes, inside yeah. of a tasty sandwich? I don't know that any Greek scholar has ever used that as an example, but I'm going to go with that. I'm going to call that the Justin Party rule. So, okay. So, and, th- and here's why it's important because the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you that what, what's being said here is that uh, uh, we're going to look forward to the day when God, our great God, and our great Savior, Jesus Christ, will, will be revealed. And the problem with that is the whole context of the passage is all about what Jesus Christ did and all about how Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. Okay, mm-hmm. God didn't die on the cross. God the Father didn't. Jesus did. Mm. We're not awaiting the return of God the Father. We're awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. And so the whole passage is really cemented together here in 2.13. We look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. So Jesus, for Paul, is so clearly both our Savior and our God. It's just like Thomas, when he puts his hands in the holes, and he touches the holes in Jesus' hands, he puts uh, his hand in the hole in Jesus' side, he exclaims, my Lord and my God. Hmm. It's both, you are both. He's not saying, oh my God, and Jesus, you're my Lord. He's saying, you are both. And so it's just really, really important that we know this verse is also repeated. This exact uh, structure is repeated in Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. It says exactly the same thing. We look forward to the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter uses this language and Paul uses this language because they both believed he's God. All right. Well, we have made it all the way to number one and or number five, yeah. depending on how you're ordering this. Let's hit up Hebrews one. Uh, verses one through three. Yeah, and so I would just say this again, if you have a Jehovah Witness friend that believes that Jesus Christ is an angel, you just you need to go no further than Hebrews chapter one, because the whole point of Hebrews chapter one is he's no angel, Okay, um, that he's greater than that. So it says this, long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The sun radiates God's own glory. So let me just go there. The sun radiates God's own glory. That kind of reminds me of the transfiguration. Yeah, exactly. So for example, when you go out and get a suntan, how how do you get a suntan? You get a suntan from the radiation that's pouring forth from the sun. Just like our solar panels, a lot of people think, oh, it's just, no, what, what the solar panel is catching is it's actually catching radiation particles, little pieces of the sun that have been launched out from the sun to earth, okay? Uh, so you can't separate. So many, my science brain is like, what? Yeah. And I just realized, man, I need to get solar panels just to protect Catch my house from radiation. Yeah. little tiny mini comets or yeah. something. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what it is. It's not light, uh, it's yeah, particles. Okay. It's actual particles of the sun that have been launched out a bazillion miles an hour towards earth. I mean, it's little pieces of flame and energy and your solar panels are catching that and turning it into energy. So in the same way, you Good can't job, separate, just... you know, you can't separate sunshine from the sun. Right. You can't because the sunshine is from the sun. In the same way, you can't separate Jesus Christ from God. 
because Jesus Christ is as sunshine is to the sun. So it says, now in these final days, he has spoken us through his son, who is what? The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Hmm. And so Jesus Christ is God's son. And so, you know, if, if this is blowing your mind, you just need to think about Jesus this way. If I introduced you to my son, I said, this is my son, Ethan. You would never think my son is an alien. You wouldn't think that he's an animal. You would assume that he's a human being. Mm-hmm. because he's my son. And that's the point the gospels are trying to make. When Jesus is referred to as God's son, mm-hmm. he shares a unique relationship with the father. Why? Because my, just as my son is a human being, Jesus Christ as God's son is a divine being. Mm-hmm. He is God almighty. And so what, what, what was so offensive to the Jews, no human being in the history of the world ever referred to God in the way that Jesus does. They thought, how dare you? How dare you call Jesus your father? Mm. Jesus, when he prayed, when he talked, when he healed, when he touched, he assumed a unique relationship with God that not even Moses had. And that's what Hebrews 1 is talking about. Not even King David had. Not even Solomon, all of his wisdom had. Not Elijah, not Elisha, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, not Daniel. None of these guys shared the unique relationship that Jesus Christ had Uh, with God the Father. And what's amazing is not only does Jesus have that relationship with God, but he shares it with us. Mm -hmm. So when we become, you know, born again Christians, right? The Bible says that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he gives us his spirit in us that cries out, Abba, Mm -hmm. Abba. And so Jesus, not only does he have a unique relationship with God the Father, but he shares it with those who place their faith faith and trust in him. And so I, I would just say this, some of you are gonna feel overwhelmed. You're gonna feel, oh my gosh, this is way too beyond me. But if you're a born again believer, God has placed his spirit in your life. And, and I just wanna talk just real quickly about why I'm referring to Romans 8, actually. Romans 8 okay. is he's placed his spirit in our hearts that cries out, Abba. And this is why it's so important. A lot of us think that, you know, oh, that's gotta be so deeply theological and powerful. No, the word Abba is like, our English word, dada. And so it's primal. It's the first words that an infant can utter when understanding God. And so what, what I love about that is when we have God's spirit in our hearts, we don't want God for something. Like when a little kid, like when your sons or your daughter says, dada, mm-hmm. dada, they don't want anything but you. Mm. They don't want what you provide. They don't want what you can give, right? We learn that as we get older. Hey, dad, can I have? But when you're little, your first words are just dad, dad. Mm-hmm. And what are you saying? I want you, dad. Yeah. And so God has placed his spirit in our hearts. And so I just would say this is, you might be theologically intimidated by these passages. Study these passages, pray over these passages, uh, and just say, you know, dad, I want you. I want to know you. I want to love you. Um, and, and I wanna know your son, Jesus Christ, who's made all of this possible because without Jesus Christ, we are eternally separated from God. And we can't, you know, a lot of people like to say, well, we're all God's children. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. We are all God's creation. Those who are followers of Jesus are his children because we alone have the spirit of God that cries out, Abba, Daddy. And, uh, and that's what we need to do. And so my hope is that, you know, people that are listening would be able to turn to, you know, John 1, 
Hebrews, Colossians, Philippians, mm-hmm. um, you know, Titus 2.13. I'm not forgetting one. Yep. Here, I was going to gonna say, yeah. So John chapter 1, 1 through 4, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Titus 2, 13, and then Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Yeah. And, and, there, and, and guys, we haven't even talked on the miracles that Jesus did and the power that he assumes. I mean, right, just like, right. you know, in this week's message, the the feeding of the 5,000, what's that about? Yeah, where'd that come from? I'm just going to pray over food and manifest, you know, enough food to feed 25,000 people. I mean, who does that? God does that. Just like in the Old Testament, right? God brought manna from heaven. Jesus brings it out of a basket. It's absolutely amazing. And there's something powerful that's happening there, right? Um, they had They had more than enough that was left over. Um, I mean, it, it, was, it was just, it's just powerful, you know, and that's why he says, who do you say that I am? And so that's why every person listening to the podcast is you need to get to the place where you can answer that question. Who do you say that I am? And I, I've given you the biblical evidence that he is the son of God, mm-hmm. but every person listening has to make the decision for themselves. Right. My opinion doesn't matter. Theirs does. They've got to decide. And so Luke has written us this gospel, not so that we can base our opinion on, well, I think, but so that we can base it on truth. Mm-hmm. So we have the facts. So that Theophilus, that he's writing the book of Luke to and the book of Acts, can make the right decision based upon the truth. So he can choose to believe or reject Jesus based upon the truth. I love it. Here's what I'm guessing. A bunch of you guys have some questions possibly that came up out of this. And you know what we like to do here? Get them in front of Pastor Matt's face. So reach out to your community group leader if you uh, have some some stuff that came up from this and uh, they will get your question directly to us. Stephanie and I will uh, bring it to Pastor Matt here and we'll be back next week with some more great questions and all those kinds of things. Thanks for uh, joining us, guys. We're going to jump over and do some... Uh, uh, we're going to sit down with your wife, man. All right, man. Very excited. Be nice to her. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening. Love you. Well, guys, I am super excited. We have Pastor Matt's wife, Tammy Brown, on the show today. What's up, Tammy? Hey, everybody. We are excited to have you on here because you are kind of the architect of Cultivate Women here at Sandals Church, and this is a big week for you guys in Cultivate, right? Your website launched yesterday, the new website and blog. Yeah, it's it's a big week for us because it's a project we've had um, a vision for mm-hmm. for about a year now. And it's a lot of work by people, not me, because I don't know how to build a website. <laughs> so the fact that it's all um, ideas that I've had in my heart for a year kind of coming to fruition is really, really great. Super cool. Well, I think um, especially the ladies that are listening should go check it out. It's at www.cultivate.sc. And one of the cool things that's on there is this blog with even just stories and stuff from the ladies of our church. Yeah, the the blog is actually um, my favorite part of what our website will offer. The website in itself will be a great resource for women because we're multiple campuses, but mm-hmm. one church. Right. Um, for the women to know what's happening for Sandals Church, yeah, regardless exactly. of what campus, you can go there, find out when the studies we're having are, what's going on. We're going to have some presence on each campus on a weekly basis. Actual presence, like gifts? Um, no, like a, a physical oh, okay, got relationship. Right, I got really excited for a second because I was like, candles, goodie bags. There is candles and merchandise that That's you can right. buy as presents <laughs> okay, every enough. weekend at each campus. But you can find those things out on the website. Oh, cool. But what I'm most excited about is the blog because 
part of what I really wanted for Women in Cultivate with this blog is, hey, here's my real story. Here's something I really went through. Mm-hmm. Here's how I got through it. Here's how I had to be real with myself, real with God, real with others. Right. Here's what worked for me. Maybe you could try this. Here's what didn't work. Right. Don't do this. Yeah. And it's real women, real life, real experiences for other women to glean from. And 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 eventually what will happen is any woman out there, either from Sandals, or you could refer a friend to the blog to say, hey, I know you're really struggling with loneliness. Right. And you'll be able to go there and hit you know, the search for loneliness, and you'll get real women's stories of how they struggle with loneliness and how right. God met them there, or forgiveness, or bitterness, or envy, or body image, or all of these things that women go through. You'll just be able to search that, and there'll be real stories of how God met them there, mm-hmm. scriptures to go with that, to encourage women. I just think it's going to be potentially a really fantastic resource to meet women where they are from other women. Super cool. And then, can you just tell me? Simply because I know that cultivate is this thing. What is what's like? Really what is your what's the kind vision? Of a big deal. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> what what's the overall vision there? Of it's like are you, are you trying to connect the women of sandals? What's it about? I do want to connect the women of sandals for sure, which is a little bit tricky. Um, I love what God's done in our church, and but there are hundreds and hundreds of women. So anytime right. we try thousands, to do something, really. there's yeah. thousands of women, literally. Every time we try to do something to connect at this point could be its own mini conference. Mm-hmm. So I have to be really strategic on how I can connect um, with right. the women. Um, the vision, though, is beyond connecting. It's really to a couple things. What I want Cultivate to do is to be a place where women not just study and know God's Word. There's a lot of women's ministries out there, a lot of Bible studies where there's a lot of emphasis on the memorizing and the studying and and that's fantastic we do need to do that as Mm -hmm, women mm -hmm. what i want and what why we're called cultivate is because i want the women who are coming to sandals anything that we're doing to not just study god's word not just memorize god's word but go oh I read this. Now mm-hmm. there's no turning back. Okay, right. So I read this. I can't pretend I don't know what God wants from me now. Yeah. So I need to cultivate it in how I treat my friend, how I forgive others, how I love my neighbor, how I love my enemy, mm-hmm. how I love myself, mm-hmm. how I live my everyday life. Like there has to be a marriage between God's word and how we're actually behaving. And I really see a huge void in Christianity mm-hmm. in that right. in particular. So when I started Cultivate, I, I really sat down and started thinking, what would a study look like that I actually want to attend? Yeah, I okay. have three kids. I'm co-pastoring this church with Matt. Mm-hmm. I have I could try to spend all of my time loving on our staff and staff wives, and that would be a full-time job. Right, totally. So how how do I want, what, what would I want to spend those last few hours that maybe I have free doing? Mm-hmm. What would it look like that I actually want to go to? Yeah, totally. And that gave me a lot of creative freedom to say, in those few hours that I might have free that I could be doing laundry or just laying on my couch doing nothing, <laughs> yep. what is going to be worth that time that I totally. have? Because women have a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do is I want to have a safe space. Now, 
when it comes to cultivate, let's talk about safe space because that's where the vision of kindness came in. Is, okay, right. It's it's a real fine line with women, the love hate line. Okay. We I think God put in us this love for each other. Matt will tease me so often because he's like, You you love your girlfriends, like you always want to be together. What about me? And I just think women love girlfriends. They're very mm. important to us, yeah. those relationships, those connections the gift of gab and just wanting to talk and tell everything and <laughs> right. compliment each other. And um, we have that. And yet, so women, we desire it, but they're also some of our most unsafe and mm. deepest wounds, wounded relationships. And even for myself, stepping into leading women's ministry, I had a real hesitancy and had to ask God, like, do I not even like women? Do oh, wow. <laughs> Why yeah, don't yeah. I want to do this? Right. At the same time, thinking of that I was raising two teenage daughters at that time and, and just hearing myself give my daughters advice on, I know she's mean, girls are just mean, that's just the way it is, you just have to learn how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. And feeling such a deep conviction from God of, but my girls aren't supposed to be mean. Mm -hmm. That's the way the world does it, that's right. not the way we do it. So. I want for women to create a safe space where exceptional kindness is kind of the standard. I love that. And what happens or what I've been seeing happen is that women want to come be a part of a safe, kind environment, but they're not really bringing in the door. Oh, that means I also have to bring my kindness. Right. Okay. So what's been really amazing is to see that from the first time we did something almost two years ago till now, where people are like, it's not just about me being in a place that's kind, but if I'm part of that environment, I also have to be kind. Mm -hmm. um, so I want women to have a safe place carved out where kindness is kind of the expectation. Yeah, yeah, that makes um, sense. Because that's what we want to receive from one another, right? right. And in that time, what do I want to do? I want to read and study God's word, mm -hmm. and I want to have time in the moment to say, what does this mean for me? Mm -hmm. I've been to so many conferences, so many Bible studies over the last 20 years in ministry where it's like, here's all of this information. Yeah. Go home, figure out. Well, the truth is the second I leave, it's yep. like carpool. Ethan doesn't yeah, have a totally. science project done. We need to study for spelling tests. I don't yep. have groceries, laundries. Like whatever I needed to figure out is long gone. Mm. I want Cultivate to be a place where in the moment we're like, okay, so we're talking about, for example, forgiveness. Who do I need to forgive? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to take five minutes, 10 minutes right now to, to figure that out. Because the truth is I know. Mm -hmm. I know who I need right. to forgive. I know who I'm sure. holding bitterness against. Write those names down. Okay, now, what's going to be the strategy to do that? What is that going to look like in the moment? So that when I leave, whatever time that is, I had time and space where my phone's not ringing, the kids aren't bothering me, Matt's not bothering me, <laughs> <laughs> where it's just my moment, me and God, God's word, and me saying, now that I read this word, what does it mean for my life? Right, right in an environment of women being kind. So I, I want the women to receive soul care there and spiritual direction. What does it mean for me to live out being real with myself, with God, with others? Totally. And just hearing and studying the word, like a lot of studies do, you know, we've been real criticized on, um, why aren't we doing this in particular Bible study or this in particular okay. Bible yeah, study, yeah, this yeah. kind of national right. situations Books, happening out there. Yeah. And, um, which they're all really great, but I never want us to be about just studying God's word. I mm -hmm. always want to be about how do we cultivate it into our 
everyday life, friendship, marriage, situation, parenting, even our thought life, like even with this vision of kindness, it has really shaped me. Hmm. Like um, this week on the blog, if you go there, the first post is one I wrote that says, I don't even know if I believe in the idea of exceptional kindness among women, but I really oh, want well, to. Right. Yeah. You know, I really want to. And how it's shaped me is I'm starting to just in my inner monologue go, ooh, I, I really don't like this person. Hmm. Um, spoiler alert, I don't like some people and I'm still a pastor's <laughs> wife. <laughs> but I don't. But So what does it look like for me to be kind to them? Mm-hmm. Like it is shaping me like, okay, that doesn't mean I, I don't want to spend time with them. Mm-hmm. I don't trust them. They're not safe to me. I need some space. So what does kindness look like to that person? That. Because we yeah. all have people that we don't really want to cozy up to and be mm-hmm. best friends with, but we can still... And we're still called to be kind. So it's things like, you know what my way of being kindness is? It's I'm not going to talk about them to this other friend. Mm-hmm. That's my act of kindness to them. I can still show kindness to unkind people or yeah, people totally. that I don't necessarily feel great about. So the vision of kindness is even shaping me in asking myself, what does kindness look like in this situation where you've hurt me, where you've wounded me, where you've frustrated me, where... You didn't meet my expectation. What does it look like to be kind? And that's been a real interesting journey for me. Mm-hmm. And I hope that women will go along with that too, of just shaping it because, uh, am I talking too much? No, this <laughs> is great, sorry. man. No, I'm actually um, taking notes so that I can apply this to my relationship with Lindy. Okay, good. And good. Uh, hopefully I'll go home and things will be great. Uh, it will be. If you be really <laughs> kind, it will be. Okay, sounds good. You know, we talked about that this, this week is Matt and I's 20th anniversary. And I joke like, We've been married 20 years and we've had like 10 really good years. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But you know what? That guy, he he has truly learned how to be kind to me. So That's awesome. Um, Can you tell me about this conference that's coming up? Because that seems like mm-hmm. it's basically going to just be like this pinnacle experience for everything that you've just been telling me about. I, I really hope so. It's the first time we've done a conference to this kind of scale here and the first time for women Um, It's going to be a two-day conference, May 20th and 21st here on our main campus, Friday night, all day Saturday. I'm bringing in um, a speaker. Her name is Lisa Bevere. She's written several books, and she speaks all over the globe. She's really incredible, and she was super formative for me, even stepping into the role of leading Cultivate. When I I saw her at a conference, um, and I didn't want to go to the pastor's wife gathering because I thought, oh, I don't want to go be in a room with a bunch of women, okay. interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. And I left it with a heart for women. And I really credit that to her wow, and so her cool. vision. So I'm so excited. Um, the thing is that I was so excited to book her to come until it occurred to me that I actually have to meet her now. So I'm a little <laughs> nervous to meet her and not be like totally like fanning out over That's her. Awesome. Like, that was awesome. And acting like I'm 13 year old. Um, but I'm going to try it really hard to pretend. To That's be awesome. Well, you're going to be sharing the same stage too, right girl? I am, which I'm also really kind of losing my mind. Dude, about. That's going to be awesome. Um, so I'm really excited about that. We're bringing in another speaker. She's a young lady named Audrey Roloff. Okay. And the reason I was so attracted to Audrey to have her come is she's a pretty well-known blogger and she's a young married. But what I love about Audrey is she lives so intentionally about her life. I, I started, to, I saw her wedding um, on TV. She's part of a reality show. And I saw her wedding and I just, I loved her vows. And then I started kind of mm-hmm. just 
stalking her a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And what I want for our young girls, because this conference is also for teenagers. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to women, I feel like a lot of the issues that I help women with as adults, if we could deal with some of this stuff with our young girls, when we're growing into women, we we wouldn't be half the messes that we are. Some of these identity and jealousy and competitiveness and all of those things. So, what, what I want for our young girls is to be a part of Cultivate and to start getting some of these truths that the rest of us in our 30s, 40s, and older are still trying to figure out. But for myself, having two teenage girls, I want them to have other ideas of what you can look like to be beautiful and successful that's not a Kardashian. Right. And I just feel like the world is like, you have to look like this, dress like this, be about this. So I came across Audrey, and I, what I really loved about her is she's another way. She's beautiful. She's very um, outgoing and adventurous and confident. And what's interesting is I, I flew up to see her, and I took my daughter, Kennedy, who had no idea about her and could have cared less. And Kennedy was like, you're right, Mom. Hmm. I, I, I want to be like her. Oh, that's so and cool. so I just want to put some other options in front of our young girls because I feel like all they're bombarded with what is rule models that are not God's best for them. Right. So teenage girls get to come to it um, 13 to 18. So cool. Every other age. It's in May. Did I ever say that? 20, yep, May 2021. 20, yeah. Super cool. And here's what's awesome. Right now is early bird pricing. So if anybody yes. registers for the website or registers on the website, on the website, you go to cultivate.sc, click the button that says conference. And uh, if you register, here's I've got the promo code for you guys. It is SC Kind sixteen. So SC like Sandals Church mm-hmm. Kind sixteen, and uh, that'll get you ten dollars off. The tickets are fifty bucks uh, for adults, forty dollars if you're a teenager, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, either way, you get a ten dollar discount by using that code anytime only, only in the for month this of March. March. Okay, yeah, only during good. March. And what what I, and that includes a lunch. And for the first hundred plus teens that sign up audrey's actually hosting a special luncheon for just those girls that is just going to talk about how do you navigate those years without completely losing your mind and still having your identity so um i would just say to moms have your teenage daughters there invite your nieces invite your neighbors invite every teenage girl that you can to be at this conference and be a part of that so Awesome. It's going to be fantastic. Well, super cool. Well, thank you for coming on the uh, debrief here. We're super, gra- super, super grad. We're super, <laughs> I don't even know what Grateful. I was going to say. Yeah, there you go. We're <laughs> super stoked uh, that you came on here. Congratulations on 20 me. years of marriage too, by the way. That was, I know. We're, that we're pretty, pretty awesome. excited. That's a long time in today's world. So true. Well, very cool. Well, everybody else. my birthday. Oh, for this week as well? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It's birth anniversary week. <laughs> <laughs> that That is awesome. I have birthday, Mother's Day, and anniversary all in one month, but at least I get to spread them out a little bit. Yeah, Matt has Matt has a big, big... Big commitment on one Commitment, week. and yeah, it's awesome. all in one time. And I feel like that's probably good. better for a husband, though, because it at is, least it, you could be like... It's worked out good. He, yeah, exactly. Doomsday is coming careful. this one He week. never mixes the two. Birthday's birthday, anniversary's anniversary. It's not one, and he's he's... He does really well at that. Well, shout out to uh, Pastor Matt. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming Thank on the show. Thank you so much. Great, great week. All right, everybody. Go sign up for our conference. Exactly. Go to cultivate.sc slash conference. Ladies, everybody else, have a awesome week. We'll see you right back here next week for what's probably going to be episode 19.